This is Bruce. This is John. And this is Trav. Welcome to the TriTag Games Podcast, your only source of transdimensional explorations and modern supernatural versus agents of the government. And other weird stuff. Specifically, we're also talking about hardwired hinterland. This is our third segment on hardwired hinterland and how to set up a campaign and run it. We've talked about the zero campaign. We've talked about the introductory campaign. We've even given a few sample campaigns starting there. This time, what we're going to do is we're going to say, okay, you have a number of mature players. You know, these aren't necessarily people who've just started playing the game. They're seasoned role players. So we want to bring them in to Hardware Hinterland and not have to start them off at the, okay, you just washed up on the shore of New Akron. Go from there. We want to actually bring them in in a mature campaign with mature players and also mature characters. But the problem is, is that since this is a game that doesn't have the advertising budget of D&D or uh, World of Darkness... And it's using a, a, a setting and background that, well, is totally new and unique. Right. So you may not have heard a whole lot about it or had ever played anything quite like it. So we wanted to try to help cushion that GM who was trying to start a campaign in this particular world without having to totally toss him to the wolves, so to speak, and make him start from the very beginning with his players. To me, when you bring in experienced character, characters that have been in the world for a while, essentially we're talking about starting your campaign in media res. So when you do that, you have to have characters who already have relationships to each other so that you don't have to spend two or three sessions doing the, okay, why am I hooking up with you and, and going through various kinds of awkward kinds of scenarios just to slowly build your team. You want to start hitting the ground running with a team that actually, or at least a set of people that have similar goals and are, are working toward some kind of campaign structure. I think the most important thing first off is to have characters that know themselves. They're not trying to discover themselves. They already know who they are. And so the players have to write down those characters you know, it has to take the time to actually develop those characters before they even start. And they have to develop the relationships between the characters. John, what are some ways of doing that? Some systems, 
role-playing game systems like Fate, it's actually built into the character creation system. Whereas you go along, you define the person's childhood. In this case, I would say, if you use Fate for Hardwired Hinterland, the first chapter is before they came to the, to the Hinterland. The second chapter would be, I met this person to my, the player on my right. I met the player on the right and what would happen to us. And then I met the player on the left or how he helped me and the player on the right solve a problem. And then we do the last chapter, which is, you know, the final, you know, I'm fully mature, how everything ties together and where I am right now and what's going on. And that could be a more of a group thing, but that helps you to find a character and to find your relationships to at least two other players in your group. That is true. You don't need to sit there and have the full intricate web. If you have five players, you can have them know maybe one or two other people, but they all know each other through the various degrees of separation. Well, you know, the whole Kevin Bacon thing where A knows B and C, B knows D and E, E knows A and C, and you go like that. And after a while, you create the method of trust because of the fact that, okay, I trust this person enough to say that the guy over there is good enough to do this with. Because I trust my buddy here that I've known for 10 years. So, yeah. You don't need to know everyone. It's like kind of like networking. You know, kind of like a con. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I think it's really important for the GM to really go with this. I mean, with the players come out with something outlandish, try to make it work. Because if they mention it... If they came up with the idea, it's resonating with them. They're getting jazzed about that. And that's just going to make your campaign better if you let them be the characters that they want to be. If these characters are coming from modern-day Earth into the hinterland, I mean, obviously it's going to have to be a real-life Earth-type origin. It's not going to be like, well, we were traveling on a star. I mean, you have to still keep it within the game continuity. But other than that one minor limit yeah the players if they done this that and the other as long as it doesn't break the 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 canon that you're trying to set up roll with it go with it i mean yeah the players i mean there's nothing more satisfying to a player of a role-playing game than a character that they love to play trav you actually don't have to limit yourself to modern day because if you look in the book from 1000 bce to 2950 ce and so that is a wide, you know, wide difference. Oh, yeah. Oh, well, okay, yeah. But I mean, if you're basically, it sounds like the context we're doing here is you are running some historical campaign and you all of a sudden want to just stick it into the hinterland, a, a change in the campaign. Let's say that, yeah, they're experienced players. They've been doing these characters for a long time. They not only have extensive backstory, but they've been playing them for a few years. Let's say how long this campaign's been going. And let's say it's, oh, a Renaissance-era European campaign, sort of medieval, you know, and you want to throw the hinterlands into it. No, actually, that's not what I mean at all, Trev. I mean that <laughs> they are creating these characters, and the campaign is all taking place in the hinterland. They're just not starting it when these guys first arrive. They're saying, you've been having a whole bunch of adventures already. Okay, but you just haven't role-played them out. Exactly. You're doing okay. it in media res. You're basically starting in the middle. Okay, all right. Yeah, and yeah. That, that way you, you have characters who aren't people who are literally at sea in regards to the world in which they're in, where they can know things 
which is especially helpful because if players sit down and actually read the book, they're going to know things and their characters are therefore, you have to play them dumbed down. Oh, I don't know anything about animals with an A. Well, in media res, of course you know animals with an A, as in they can speak and talk like the Oz type animals, Restorkies and all those other kinds of things. You know about those already. I ran a hardware hinge line game at the convention, which is where this comes into play. I mean, Maybe you're doing a one shot. You maybe want to just try it out, and you, but you don't want to try it out with beginning characters. You want to do it with full bore characters, which is what I did when I ran it at a convention. So the characters were from all over. I mean, one guy was from the old west. Some guy claimed to be from the future. Some guy didn't know where he came from. He basically was one of those unfortunates who didn't have a good transition on uh, when he came to, to the uh, hinterland. But they all were really different people but uh, they all sort of have reasons they were working together I, I made sure i wrote their back histories on the characters that there's some reason why they were working together each other it works well with player created characters some guy may say well i want to play a character from oh from the the 25th century and he's got lasers and sure no problem you may have some problems maintaining those weapons because they're high-tech weapons yeah nobody has any dilithium crystals uh, in the hinterland. Yeah. It's pulling from not just one Earth, it's pulling from many Earths. Many possible Earths. Yeah, many possible yes. Earths. One person's 25th century may not be the, the other person's 25th century. Right. So what you have here are characters who, uh, as I said, they're not trying to discover themselves. They already know who they are. Yeah. And when they come to the hinterland... It's a fresh start. It's a chance for them to break away from all of their failures, uh, all of their unrealized dreams, and really go with one last big chance for what they really want to do. And that's what you need to do as far as creating these characters. You could say, what is this person's dream? What is their great goal in life that they've always wanted to do and they couldn't? Okay? Or what is the failure they want to redeem? That's where you should start, and that you know, because that way you say, My character has all this history because this is what's driving him. And then you bring that to the table in your character, and then you say, Okay, because of that, my character is this. My character should be on this environ. My character, you know, should know these people, or they he should be involved in this profession. And work with each other to tie your characters again following those dreams, hopefully creating an amalgam that will allow you to all follow your dreams, your individual dreams, as a group dream, as a group goal. And then that's where the GM can then say, okay, now I know that, now I can start writing adventures for you. doesn't hurt to have more than one copy of the game available. John, what, what's the price on the game? I forget. It's less than $15, I believe. Yeah. Guys, buy the game. That's true. Buy the game, yeah. Buy your own copy. Put it on your hard drive, okay? I, I have a copy of the game on every computer I own because I own the game. I can look at it wherever I want to, and I can work on it, and that's great. Okay, And I, I printed out a copy of it, so I can carry that around with me, too, on the bus or the train or whatever I want to. So you know, buy yourself a copy so you can feel free to write notes in it or do whatever you want to to it, it's, but especially so you can get inside it and learn the game so that you can be effective players. Yeah. You just can't do that if the GM's the only one who has a copy of it, unless you're playing those neophytes 
who don't know anything, and the GM's going to be spoon-feeding it to you. If you're going to do this, if you're going to come into it as a mature player, as a mature character in a mature campaign, you've got to know the campaign world. At least you have to have it available to you to, to look things up you know, rather than having to constantly pester the GM for information that you should already know as far as you know, playing your character. Well, see, I was worried about them getting a hold of the adventures. There are three adventures in the book. I don't want them being ruined. I would assume that they're not going to play those adventures, John. You never know. Okay, folks, if you go and decide to buy this, what are the pages that these people should not look at, John? There's actually three scenarios. So page 93 to 96, and then page 113 through 117. Right. So don't look at those pages. Yeah. Everything else is gold. Yep. (laughs) I would say the thing to print out is... The, the, the pages that you're picking and choosing, I mean, it's going to take a little work, a trip to, you know, FedEx, Kinko's, or wherever your local copy place is, Surf Speedy or whatever. A primer for your players to look at. The pages from the PDF that you want the players to know right off the bat, they keep them there with the characters in like a Trapper Keeper folder. And they know then, okay, this the stuff that's on these pages, these 10 or 11 pages, are the things that my character knows by virtue of being here. It might be a little work for the game master, but in the long run, it will certainly pay off. Yeah. Two pages to print out are pages eight and pages nine. The map of the environs and the short descriptions of each one. That's right. a good one to put on the table so people can look at it and go, oh, there it is. And not have to oh, go yeah. through the book. <laughs> yeah. What I would do is I would print out all of the environs, you know, uh, and then I would also print out all the personalities. Yeah. Because that brings us to what I think is the next step you should do. Is it Once you've decided who you are and therefore which environ it's likely that you would be having spent a fair amount of time on or a set of them that you might have gone between, then I think that every person in the group should pick one of these personalities and, and say, I know this person or I know one of these people. And that acts as a contact for them so that when they start the adventure, they actually are grounded in a group that's important on one of these environs. Yeah. And give them an airplane. Don't make them buy it. Don't make them spend an edge or, or whatever to get it. Just give them an airplane. At least one airplane, if not more. That's the only way of getting around, so therefore you should have one. It doesn't have to be the DC-3, but that's the most common plane that's there. I personally think that uh, the best combination would always be the DC-3 plus at least one escort fighter. So that if you do run into like some bad weather or uh, the, one of the plane goes down and somebody can go for help, or in, in the case of where you get attacked by air pirates, you have somebody to help defend the plane. Some rule systems treat things like airplanes as a plot device. So just live with that, I'd I, be honest. And others, there are real, there's good actual rules for air, aircraft fighting. So games like that are like fate. Fate, airplanes are just a plot device. Literally. Well, it depends on the kind of campaign you want to do. Once yeah. you have your characters and you see the kind of roles that, you, that they want to play, mm-hmm. then that's going to tell you where these people are jazzed up about being. If they're only interested in getting into local politics, well, then you probably shouldn't be spending a whole lot of time with air combat. That's true. Well, right, yeah, and if you're dealing with, okay, we want to fight the air pirates of this environment, and we know they're coming from here, you're going to need a plane, 
the GM is going to have to mo have more than a passing knowledge of uh, vehicle combat rules for whatever system you use. You should pick a system that has good rules for that. Right. Yeah. right. Like if you're using Fate, Fate, you're just simply assigning some attributes to the airplane. The airplane gets some attributes. That's what you're using for your plane. But then again, so will the, the planes you're facing against. And the way Fate works, you can always assign extra attributes to either your plane or to the planes you're attacking. Yeah, but it's really abstract. Savage Worlds or D20 Modern. There you need miniatures. There you're going to worry about turning races. There are some people that, if they're playing this game, and, and for those of you who have not yet bought the game, <clears throat> it's sort of the pulp era, air pirates, uh, mm -hmm. tailwind old monkey, bring them back alive, sort of Indiana Jones type mentality where you're going to have these planes flying over the sea like you're seeing the, the transit scenes in the Indiana Jones movies. Sky Captain and the World of Tomorrow, Sky King, the old television series, mm -hmm. all of those early black and white uh, serials. Tales of the Brass yeah. Monkey. Yeah. All that stuff. I mean, you know, there's a rich visual heritage for you guys to just go and, and and most of this stuff, by the way, you could probably buy fifty or sixty of these cereals on a single collection for ten bucks. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, if they're not already available streaming on Netflix or right. at your public library, these are really great things to get just to get the feel and just to kind of get into it. It really kind of depends on which kind of campaign you want and how much travel you want to have between your environs. If you people really want to just play on one environ, well, all that plane stuff pretty much goes away unless you want to do some aerial surveillance, and you don't need a DC-3 to do that. Yeah. Using the lightning crystals, planes, even big planes, can truck along at very slow speeds. They're practically blimp slow. <laughs> And so you get lots of great aerial views of everything, and almost anything can act as an observation platform. I think we mentioned this on a previous one, Jay did, because of the planes moving, being able to move relatively slow. You can do things like boarding the plane as you would from one seagoing ship to another. I mean, you can get into yeah. some really hairy air boarding maneuvers trying to get on another person's plane and actually get in the plane. I mean, you can do some really cool stuff if you have a mm -hmm. decent craft. If you are willing to go this route and use air combat rules for whatever system you're using, you can really get into some hairy stuff. Yeah, you could have a combat on the wing of a plane. Oh, yeah. And you can do other weird stunts, too. Like, as I mentioned in our earlier episode about this, where we're doing the when I ran this game, the con, the players realized, we can land this in this intersection here. We just got to stall right over top of the intersection and we float down like a feather and land right in the middle of the intersection with a TC3. <laughs> it was like, okay, getting out is going to be a little bit of a problem, but you can land there. <laughs> you know, definitely, you definitely do some stunts in there. I mean, you know, combat with this is going to be really crazy because it's more like uh, cartoon combat, really. It comes right down to it. You can stop in midair reverse your props and go backwards i don't think that's true john i think you could i think i think not at all john because come on it still has to have lift your lift most of your lift is actually you, for the lightning you crystals. stop a plane you, you stop a plane i don't care if you, you put a lightning crystal you stop a plane in the middle of the air you're still you're okay it's gonna, it's gonna drop yeah it's still gonna drop okay I mean, I'm it's not gonna drop but remember the plane's gonna have the density of of, of styrofoam it's not going to fall like a rock. It's going to fall more like a leaf. But still, you if, you're, if you're going forward and just be, what? okay, the lightning crystal, what, removes 
the it doesn't remove the mass. It just removes the like the pull of gravity that makes it heavy. So exactly, if you're if it's got a light plane and you decide to cut the motor and then you're going to start it in reverse, you're still going to be going forward and slowly going down. And soon, and if you actually manage to stop it relative to the to the ground, you are going to drop. Right, and just and and, and you're going to drop without any kind of control surfaces either. Which means you're probably going to do a header. Well, I will point to uh, page ten where it mentions that it removes ninety percent of the mass. So it is mass. Uh, whatever. Jim. I know, I know, but the thing is, it's still it's still going to flop. Yeah, it's still going to flop. And, and airplanes are designed. You're right. Airplanes are designed to fly one direction, not the other. Yeah. But you, but you can try. You know, things you normally wouldn't do with regular planes. Like if you got two en- if you got two engines, you can at least reverse prop in one of the engines and turn on a dime. Right. Now, what you can do, okay, yeah. and, and I really don't want to get into this because this is not the detail we want to get yeah, into yeah. in the show, is that if you do actually create a helicopter, which will run on uh, alcohol because of this whole thing, this thing can literally sit there in the air for hours. Yep. You can have, I mean, we, we already have in the game these gigantic aerial flight platforms just like they had in Sky Cap oh, yes. in the World of Tomorrow. So, mm-hmm. yeah, you can have these giant floating platforms or like they had in uh, uh, The Secret Adventures of Jules Verne. Oh, yeah. And you can also, on top of that, if you use lightning crystals along with uh, lighter-than-air technology, you can have really massive structures in the air. You know, there's, you know, there's nothing stopping you because they get the, like the Andalusia, which is, I think you're talking about. They're using the the best crystals for that one to get that one right. flying. But hey, if you got if you got helium, and you got a bunch of dirigibles lashed together into a platform, you don't need so much. You don't need a really good crystal. You just need an average crystal to keep that sucker flying for a long time. Right. Yeah. And you also have an unlimited supply of helium because yep. it's coming off of that big pipe in the middle of each Everon every single day. But they're going to be so protected though. I mean, that's a, that's a tactical, that's a strategic source of gas. Eventually, the game of interdimensional adventure from Tri-Tech Games. Antarctica 2010. A Japanese research team finds a portal to alien and alternative Earths. Only one person in 100,000 has the special ability that lets them use the portal and travel the pathways to infinity. You are this person. You are the Fringeworthy. Fringeworthy is the first RPG of interdimensional adventure across millions of alternative Earths. Fringeworthy is available at Tritech Games at www.fringeworthy.com trytechgames.com slash fringe dot htm A million million worlds await you. Go visit them. Okay, you have these characters. They have a backstory. They have a relationship to each other because of past adventures. They've got some equipment that really works with their characters. They know which environs they're probably most associated with. They know some people, at least one person, that is an important character in the Hardware Hinterland, where if they say, oh, so-and-so knows me, or so-and-so will back me up, then that gives them some credibility with, with even new people that they run into. 
and this is where we turned to help the GM. He says, okay, what kind of adventures could I run for these characters? Well, of course, first thing you have to do is you have to run adventures that they're interested in. Yeah. If they're not interested in the adventure, you're wasting your time. Right. So we're going to make the assumption that they are, in fact, interested. What I did was I looked at the environs. I tried to figure out from the actual book. And, and unfortunately, this is an area where the source book is lacking. And that is there's not enough adventure hooks. Not enough co- obvious conflict. Yeah on most of these environs. As a matter of fact, uh, there seems to be a, an emphasis on how happy everybody is and how well everybody gets along with everybody else on most of the environs, which, of course, means there's no story. Yeah, bovine stuff. Okay. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so you got to stir things up, okay? You know, it doesn't mean that every everything is going to be in chaos and civil wars everywhere, but you need to pick something and, and work from there. So I went here and I looked at the list, and the first thing, of course, that uh, that came up to mind was New Canada, because it's, it, it does have that entire adventure, uh, which is the Voyage of the Air Beagle. Mm-hmm. It also is the location for the Pig and the Pokey, which is where you have one of the intelligent animals who's got all kinds of underworld problems where he's trying to be brought up to make a testimony before some grand council so that they can put a a very important underworld figure in jail or at least break up his power on a lot of different areas. Also a home of Interpol, which is the law office group. Right. A lot of information is available on New Canada, and there's actually a fair amount of hooks there. So if that's the sort of thing that floats your player's boat, then this is one place where you could start running adventures, especially Voyage of the Air Beagle Adventure, because that's a pretty good adventure. Yes, it is. Okay. Because of the fact that there isn't a whole lot of things saying where there's problems, the first thing I would always say is follow the money. Okay, that's almost always true in all crimes and everything else. The first thing that all the investigators do is follow the money. So look at every one of these environs and say, where is the wealth? Wherever there's wealth, there's someone who's trying to get their hands on some of it and someone who's trying to keep it from being taken away. And that gives you opportunities. Yep. The Boneyard is not a good example of that. Because here you have a place that's got, what, 30,000 salvageable DC-3s? Yep. There's no money involved in here, really. I mean, other than when they do salvage something, they go turn around, they sell the parts on the open market, or you get a, a plane put together that you can fly. But really, it's it's more or less of a survival horror kind of situation where you're trying to not get killed while you do this. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I suggested it as an introductory type adventure because it's something that doesn't require any buy-in, any real money on your part. You don't have to know all the people who are in charge of anything. Matter of fact, it didn't really look like there was much of anybody in charge of anything there. I mean, there is a dedicated group there whose job is to like you know put, help you with help you getting your plane put together. But other than that, it's pretty much laissez-faire. Right. New Akron's the Libertarian Paradise. I mean, there's a group there, but it doesn't say, are they sponsored by anybody? Do they receive any benefit for this other than feeling good about themselves? If they are, well, again, no conflict. All right. It's good to have that. You need support. But I'm just saying there's no story hook there. If I was one of the guys stationed there, I'd be taking a cut of whatever's coming out of that thing. Oh, that boneyard. That would be fine. You know, and then and then as soon as you have that and you say, OK, well, you know, what's he doing with that money? Uh, is there somebody who's uh, buying poor 
you know, not, not completely restored parts and selling them someplace at a lower price, but still making a profit off of it. If I can rip off, you know, if I can hand over twice as many parts and only see a 10% loss in the value of those parts, that's a big improvement for your bottom line. Not so good for the bottoming out of somebody's plane somewhere, but if they can't trace it back to you, you're you're golden, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. You also can look at that. It's I think it's called Basecamp Zulu too. Maybe this is actually being sponsored by some uh, wealthy individuals who have set up uh, corporations of some sort. So they're expecting money. You're not doing this for free. You're doing it to line their pockets. And if you're doing that, then there's going to be somebody there who's going to be saying, hey, you can't leave. Hey, you need to get out there and work. You need to go out there and do that. Hey, I heard of a really great find over there, and it's all a lie, just to get you out there doing stuff. There's always the people who are there saying, here, let me sell you this gun to protect yourself from the howling men while you're out there going and getting those parts. The outfitters, a lot. Uh, if you look at the history of the uh, gold rushes, some of the most scurvious, you know, hives of villainy had to do with the people that were actually buying and selling the goods, the outfitters, for doing that. Oh, yeah. They were screwing people left, right, and center and figured, oh, they're going to get killed out in the wilderness. I can sell them whatever I want, and they're not going to come back and get me. That's exactly what happened to Columbus. The people that were uh, in charge of outfitting sailing ships we're constantly undercutting each other and producing really poor quality foodstuffs because they could. They would take half rotted food and they would put it into a barrel full of brine so it wouldn't get any worse. Okay, And of course the saltiness would cover up the taste of it and they would pass that off as higher grade food and sell it at a premium. Because this Columbus guy is about to go and sail out west and go over the edge of the world. Why should I not collect some money while I can? Wow. It's not like he's ever going to need the rest of that food. There's also other camp followers, too. I mean, you know, besides people selling you goods, there's people, well, there's always need for entertainment of various sorts. Ah, yes, the world's oldest profession. We won't get into that any farther because we have miners who play the game. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Right. So as a GM, it's easy to look for the money motive. Okay, yep. it's, it's, it's an easy way of driving things. Mm -hmm. It's not the only motive. There, I mean, because the whole thing about the, the voyage of the, of the Beagle is really scientific exploration. It's really something along the lines of some of those old stories where you had the Adventurers Club that would you know, have these various people who were royalty who would pool their money to go on great expeditions and send explorers out. Yeah. That's still there. That's still part of the hardware hinterland. Yeah. But that's an adventure. That's not a conflict. The adventure of Pig and a Pokey, though, you, you don't have to end it the way it ends in the book. You can end it where Sam Butcher Boy Blackwell gets off. Blackwell's back in the street, and guess what? You helped him. He helped the pig. And now you're on his list. That you're on his bad side. Yeah, you're, you're his special project for the week. Well, yeah, getting people mad at you, getting people to, uh, to want to get revenge against you is, is also a good adventure hook as far as creating adventures. Yeah. Unfortunately, that has a tendency to create adventures where the players find themselves being blindsided. Yeah. That's going to take a little bit of, of work by the GM. You might want to do that that adventure in media res, as we were talking about, where you just got you know blindsided, and that's how you start the adventure, and then after you're digging your way out from there, 
uh, without having that whole thing where you're going along and saying, when's he going to do it? When's he going to do it? Well, he did it at the beginning. So now it's, it's a, all the cards are on the table and you can work from there. Also, okay. you, know, you don't you don't actually don't have to do the pig and the pokey adventure, but you still can have the effects. The effects of, of Blackwell going to prison, or actually in this case, he's not going to prison. He's going to be exiled to some godforsaken uh, wilderness environ far, far away from anywhere near here. That's going to cause a power vacuum, and power vacuums are good because people want to fill them. Oh, yeah, has a conflict. If you get, uh, if you depose a ruler, you can, you, yeah, oh, yeah, you're going to have conflict a lot. You'll have more than you can handle. Right, right. But I I think we're getting, I I think we're asking a little bit much of our fledgling GM here. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so let's let's try to focus a little bit more on things that that a, fl- a guy who's new to the game can probably do. Okay, Carol. Now you take these notes, and then we're about ready to begin. Okay, sure. Well, what are you two doing here? We don't record until tomorrow. We're making a new promo for all games considered. Since you were dragging your feet getting one written. Hey, she's right though. It's been too long, and a lot has happened since the last promo. Yeah, like winning the gold any for best gaming podcast for two thousand and nine. You mean the one you try to work into the conversation every other episode? Hey, now, now, there's more than that. There's the new format. You mean the main show every two weeks and the assortment of other features in the meantime? Right, like games you may never have heard of, the review and new shows. Don't forget the RPG buffet. And on the main show, we have more time to focus on gaming topics. Like board and card games. And RPGs. And the people who play them, from the old school to the newest of the new. But But no no changeling. Hey! Find out more at agcpodcast.info. All games considered, because there's more than one true way to play. Etiwongo is probably one of the best places you're going to have because it really does have that whole Tales from the Brass Monkey kind of thing. Uh, it's like the world of McHale's Navy. Yeah. <laughs> Where you, you've got all kinds of things. You've got like a, a military base and then you've got a, a village and you've got backwater jungle and it all seems to be within an easy boat ride. And you got the natives. Yeah, because Etiwongo is an environ that has a whole system of rivers and lakes within it. And it's like a jungle surrounded by an ocean, because that's what an environ is. You've got these, this essentially South Sea mystique going on. with That's where the cargo cults are. And I would suggest an air pirate base there. They suggested it might be coming out of there as, uh, as part of the book. I say make it real. Why not have a, uh, an air pirate base? Not the air pirate base, but a air pirate base. Oh yeah, it's, so, it's, it's, and so here you got people who are shooting down people who are trying. You know, you start doing a flyover of Etiwongo, All of a sudden, there's air pirates shooting you down for some reason. <laughs> they don't want their base found, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. Of course, there's also the problem just simply landing at any one of the major airfields uh, in Etiwonga and having your plane still be there when you come back. Uh, well, that's not always. I mean, there yeah. are a few places like that, but yeah. most of the major airplane yeah. ports there at Etiwongo are safe. Yeah, because they're running casinos there. They want you to come and come back. Yeah. Okay. Bring more money. Go and get your friends. Come them back. That's where you need to make good friends with you know the uh, head guy there, and I'm, I, he's one of the characters we were just talking about. Oh, gee. Yeah, I think it's King Pulutat. Pulutat. 
Anyways, knowing him as one of your contacts means you could probably come to Etiwongo and not worry about someone stealing your plane. Yeah, or, or you know Omo, who runs Omo Fresh Oyster Bar, or Jimmy, who runs the uh, Bar and Grill. Well, I'm saying there's lots of adventures here on the island, okay? Yeah. There, there are natives that are uncultured mm-hmm. that uh, might be suspicious, you know, uh, who are true cardinal cultists, who when you come into their village might be all smiles, but then you do the wrong thing and they're, they're, they're going to eat you. Uh, <laughs> or not, okay, or, or ransom you back, okay? The air pirates, you could run into some sub, subterranean uh, uh, as, a submarine base a la, you know, Captain Nemo. I mean, anything could be on this environ. Oh, yeah. People sometimes forget that these environs aren't like, you know, uh, the surface and, and two or three feet below the surface. These environs are, are part of the... Well, part of this world, whatever they go down as far as you want them to go down. Oh yeah, there's no reason why you can't have even more there. You could have people hiding out there. It's a great place for people who are criminals or you know have problems of various sight to hide out. You can run into people like that. Mm-hmm. I would really recommend this as a great place, especially if you want to. A, a fledgling GM wants to start off with a place that's got a lot of interesting stuff going on. Etowongo is probably a really good spot for that. Okay. If you're more interested in uh, more traditional fantasy, there's two routes you can go. One is Ansem's Kingdom. That's the source of all these lightning crystals. He's got the the Air Knights. Oh, yeah. This is a kingdom that that has all kinds of... It's built on a medieval serfdom hood. And though he acts very modern uh, and cultured, in fact, is the, the entire thing is corrupt to the core. And where there's corruption, there's someone trying to take advantage. So if you knew somebody in there, then that gives you all kind. Co- you're going to be thrust into all kinds of machinations. And don't think the Air Knights are flying World War II or World War One aircraft. They're probably flying the the best the best money can buy. So there right. might be pushovers. Well, yeah, they got a right. government backing them. Yeah, they're going to have top-notch planes, top-notch mechanics. The ability to not only repair what they have, but crank out more if needed. I mean, Anson can literally put whatever price he... He puts whatever price the, the market will bear on his crystals. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, he's the equivalent of a modern oil uh, potentate. Yeah. And oh, yeah. sometimes, sometimes he doesn't want money. He wants stuff. You want, the, you want this load of crystals? They're, they're high-grade crystals. I want 2022... 20, uh, blah blah aircraft, you know, combat aircraft, fully equipped, ready to go, and uh, he'll get them. <laughs> right, because people want those crystals. Yeah. Uh, also, uh, there are rumors that there are uh, poppy fields on Anson's kingdom. Therefore, he could be a source of a lot of illicit drugs and other things. New old New York. Yeah. Uh, is is one that's based in like the 1920s, isn't it? Yep. Or 30s. Okay. 1930s. Every 10 years, they reset their calendar back to the beginning of the of the decade, yeah. and just keep going that way. Well, this this is an it is listed as being an underpopulated environ. Well, people who run that place they want things to get better. How are they going to get more population? Well, well, population of 200,000 is the largest population in the area. <laughs> But it says that it's underpopulated. Well, that's true, because we're talking New York City, which at the time, right. 1930s, was like a million or more people. There, there could be a lot of people out there trying to sell the streets of new, old New York as being paid with gold. 
And you could be getting a lot of people coming in from other environs thinking that life will be easy. All they have to do is get to new old New York. And of course, they get there and they find out that even based upon a 1920s technology level, they don't have any, they really don't have any useful skills outside of being domestics or common laborers and such. And so you have indentured servitude, Mm -hmm. you have a lot of vagrancy. The equivalent of the Depression. I mean, here's a here's a place that should be really booming, but instead they have all these people there who've been brought in by other people, saying, "Here's the great place for you to go to." And you know, frankly, I don't know why some people aren't doing that on a lot of these environs. Just basically going out there and finding people on some of the lesser developed environs and say, "Hey." He says, you give me XXX, which is valuable to me, and I'll take you over and drop you off in this environment where you can live the easy life, especially New Akron that has that whole newcomer program. Just say you just arrived. Yeah. And the thing is, too, I, and you, people will also go there thinking, oh, wow, it's a whole city. I mean, it's New York City. Even in the 1920s, right. there are buildings that probably have not been touched or something like that we can, we can salvage from. Then you find out that whole blocks are controlled by gangs and, and gangs of salvagers. It's their territory. You're not getting to this building for the next three months. Then it's, right. then it's ready for salvage. You, you go there, we're going to kill you. <laughs> well, we also, they, also in the book, there's really no mention, uh, except, except for a couple places, of religious uh, groups, mm-hmm. and especially religious intolerance. Yeah. Uh, I mean, New York Public Library is, is listed as having a lot of salvaged books and high-tech videos and things like that. Well, you know, what if the, some particular group decides that, oh, this is uh, not a proper set of material to be made available, and they decide to come in and start forcibly trying to take stuff, uh, destroy part of the New York Public Library? You have these groups that are now warring with each other, like, say, the the, the people that are trying to hold on to technology and develop technology versus the ones who are either Luddites or just personally who find that the way the material is presented is offensive. Because these books could be coming from anywhere in any kind of a culture, there could be all kinds of things in them that seems to be offensive to one group or another. And so you could have all kinds of groups claiming book burnings or one true wayism, and you know, you need to follow this because this is the right way. Well, that's more politics and stuff like that. So uh, if that's what your group's into, uh, especially if they want to, uh, are, if they are technology hunters, they could easily find themselves in the middle of that. Whenever I think about new old New York, Statue of Liberty, it's not green. It's bright copper because the maintenance, ma- maintenance, have been keeping it that way, which means no one's allowed on the island in fear that it will stop maintaining the statue. So basically, there's patrols out making sure some idiot doesn't try to land on the island and break the cycle and make the ants go away and make the statue start to age. Yeah, because, I mean, you know, <laughs> copper is worth a lot of money. It is. Oh, yeah. But it's worth more as a symbol, though, than it is as copper. So, yeah. Well, it's worth more as a symbol to the people in, on, on that environment. Yeah. It doesn't mean much at all to little Kiev. No. <laughs> okay. All right. New Brasilia, it says that the natives are becoming increasingly political. And when I say natives, they're actually talking about the workers. Mm-hmm. So you've got this classic Brazilian upper crust, and most everybody is in the lower crust. And they're saying, hey, you know, we want our needs met. 
And pretty soon you're going to probably have juntas and various kinds of groups that are going to use slowdowns or worse if their demands are met. You can get embroiled in that. Uh, Bruce, you might want to explain for some people what a junta is. You know, I really don't know myself. I just use that word. <laughs> um, I, I'm, I'm referring to a small uh, political group that say that has seized control of a country. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, you know, they're might- not necessarily representing the will of the people, just claiming to. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Close enough. <laughs> yeah. It's. it's it, it, you get a whole lot of uh, p- uh, presidents for life in certain areas of the world. And, of course, life lasts until they get assassinated and they get the new president for life. Yeah, it's recent events have shown. Uh, yes. <laughs> right. Anyway, so there's more. I went through each one trying to find you know things that might be uh, uh, areas of, of interest. Some of them are more grandiose. Some of them are more personal. One of the advantages of picking somebody that you know in each of these environs means that that person can come to you and say, hey, I've got a problem. Or, hey, I know somebody who who I owe a favor to, and could you do that for me? And then I owe you a favor, and then that could help you later on. So a lot of these things are kind of personal or might not be in in the direct interest of the the players, but could still be used. Um, The... um, uh, Little Texas, it says there's no gangland influences. Well, that means that there's conflict between the uh, the Indian tribes that are running the place and gangs that are trying to get in, right? Oh, yeah. Indians versus wise guys. People like uh, you know Sam Butcher Boy is trying to get in there. So, yeah, maybe various incursions happening, you know. They tried landing in force. That didn't work. So they're not going to try. We're just moving in to, you know, set up shop and uh, live here in Texas. We're not about telling them that we actually work for the mob and we're trying to get a foothold. Right. Uh, if, and if you're playing a group that's more toward the air combat, then you might be hired to do flyovers and provide, you know, security and, and you know, stop border wars and various things like that. Or you may get get, get hired by someone say, yeah, I want you to fly over here and uh, spray this, spray and crop dust these crops with this with this white powder I got here. Not telling you it's a it's a highly effective herbicide. Yeah, or or you could be dousing the entire neighborhood with a drug mm-hmm. and, and and causing them all to become addicted. Mm. Ooh. Oh yeah. One of the places that I saw that I said, you know, this is a really interesting place, but it almost guarantees that you're not going to be going from one environment to another, and that's Magicost. That place really looks – I mean, talk about a place that's, that, that really should have a supplement. That place is because you've got all kinds of bizarre creatures. You've got mages. You've got psionicists. You've got this big giant pit with – all kinds of bizarre energy in it that if you look into it, you can go mad. I mean, could there be cultists there trying to summon Cthulhu through it? I think there could. Yeah. And, and some of the magic items, I mean, some of the items you find there, you have to be careful with. They may be the wrong kind and you don't want to take them. You, you don't want to hang on to them or take them out, take them out with you. Well, you, none of, nothing that's there is worth taking away with you because the magic fades after it leaves. Yeah. Okay, so I'm saying all the magic items that are in magic cost are only useful in magic cost. 
That's true. Okay, so that's what I'm saying is that if you get into that, you're kind of be most of your adventures are going to be taking place there, involving people who are there. That this seems to be the place where all the people who want to be really tough road warrior D and D high level type characters wa- would want to live at. This is the original people who came there. They live in these small settlements with swords and magic and all kinds of stuff like that. It just it just strikes me as being such a classic D and D type super world. Oh yeah. Hmm. Oh yeah. So if you wanted to play that type of character, a very much larger than life type character, this might be a good spot to go because you'll run into a lot of people like that. Uh, if you like playing Borderlands, if you like playing Fallout 3, though Fallout doesn't really have anything to do with magic, but uh, there's other games like that, this would be a, a good place to go. Mm-hmm. I think there'd be lots and lots of adventures because they got dragons. they they got everything <laughs> to say as far as a medieval-type fantasy, which also can have other things involved with it, too. Like, you can bring technology in. Remember, where we have templates, which probably came from Noram, you can also have wishes, rings of wishes and stuff like that. So there's, you know, same thing going on there that is with, with Noram template boxes. You can wish for something, and it's there. And then you wait All till right. magic goes away enough so you can actually take it away and use it. You can use the magic as part of a process to create something yeah. that should be able to exist. So that is one of the advantages of this place, is that the impossible can happen here. Mm-hmm. And so as long as you're not trying to create a, a magical effect that just continues, you're just trying to uh, manipulate something to make it uh, have certain qualities, then you could do that here. You could make some kind of triangle trade thing going here, where you got some material from one place, and, and you brought it here, and you turned it into diamonds, and then you took that someplace else and, and made it into a high-grade sandpaper grit for something else. I mean, I don't know. I'm just saying is that the one advantage of magic cost is that you can do things here that are impossible to do anywhere else. I'd make diamond armor. You'd make diamond <laughs> armor, yeah. Diamond sword. You know, real sharp edge on that. Real pain to sharpen, though. Right. (laughs) Well, you wouldn't want to sharpen it, would you? What was the hard-wired hinterland? Join us next time. We hear our host say. This is Bruce Sheffer saying there are a million, million worlds out there, so go explore them. This is John Ryer saying keep your powder dry and keep those cards and letters coming in. And this is Trav. There's a reason why it's called gaming. It's for having fun. www.tritechgamers.com 
or on Facebook. Hi, this is Trav of the Travcast, Hour 3 of Blind Wolf's Rubber Room Association on DementiaRadio.org, Tuesdays, 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern.